Hello, it's Andrew here for another episode of Home Bible Study. Um, God's courtroom we're looking at, Romans chapter 1 to 5, and we're doing it over six sessions. Uh, the, the Home Bible Study was on Monday evening, and we are enjoying looking at Romans, and particularly we looked at the guilt of the Jewish world and thus the guilt of the whole world in session number three um, on Monday evening. So Romans chapter 2, verse 17 to 3, verse 20 has been our focus. We're trying, by the grace of God, to to help um, communicate something of the truth of this passage. Um, Paul continues his brilliant prosecution of the world's peoples. He, he is showing them to be guilty with respect, not only to creation witness, that was chapter one, of course, the pagan world mainly were focused in on then, and conscience when we thought of the more moralistic uh, world of Paul's day, when they applied their conscience to, to them and the coming judgment of the Lord. Now he applies the same treatment to the Jews, particularly. Uh, they have a specific law from Sinai, from God, and he will show that the commandments also condemn people. They condemn the Jews. So we're going to understand, hopefully by the end of this session, in chapter 2, 17 to 3, 8, that the Jewish world is guilty. And then chapter 3, 9 to 3, verse 20, that the whole world gathered together is completely uh, guilty of no kind of righteousness, no kind of right standing before God to escape his coming judgment. Now, maybe just by way of, of, of introducing it uh, for a minute or two, we'll look back briefly on where, where we've come from. As Paul has introduced the importance of the, his gospel in chapter one, um, he's told us that it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, chapter 116, he has told us that um, the, their, their inner righteousness of God is, is available. It's from faith to faith. Uh, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. He has told us that links back into the Old Testament. He then deals with the subject of the fact that we need this righteousness, that we don't have any righteousness in and of ourselves. So chapter two, chapter one, two, and three really deal with the subject of no righteousness found in the human family. And so he deals firstly with the pagan world, the, the world of those who bow down to idols of wood and stone and get involved in very open sin. And, and the, the defense that they mount, it would seem, is that they they somehow are, are not guilty because they are ignorant. They, they haven't enough knowledge to be guilty. And of course, the argument is brought by Paul on that occasion and in that way, that actually they know the judgment of God and they know that such actions deserve death, as he sums it up in chapter 1, verse number 30 and 31. Uh, they, they know these things. Um, they are aware through creation of, um, of God. They're even aware through their conscience of God. He, he kind of inferences that once or twice in the chapter as well. And so the focus there is on the witness of creation mainly and how um, the people who have not responded to the light that God has given in creation have gone away into deeper darkness and they are guilty uh, of not honoring and worshiping the true, the living God. So that's chapter one. Chapter two, he turns his attention to the person who is nodding his head in the background and saying, yes, they deserve God's judgment. Uh, and he tells us in chapter two that this person, this moralist, if you like to call him, 
it is inexcusable as well. He has no excuse whatsoever because he does the same kind of things. And if he if he doesn't even pass his own scrutiny, his own judgment, if he's hypocritical with regard to his own assessment of the situation, how much more when God's judgment is applied to him? And so from two, verse 2 to 16, he deals in chapter 2 with the judgment of God and some characteristics of the judgment of God to prove that the moralist who takes a, a high view of his own uh, cleanliness before God, as it were, his own moral rectitude. He thinks he's he's doing all right. Rather, he's treasuring a wrath, a wrath against the day of wrath and the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each according to his deeds. So there's going to be no favor uh, given. There's going to be nothing just because you happen to have come from a, a family that was on the clean side of the road. You have to be a, an upright or or, or uh, a moralistic kind of person. And uh, no, that is not sufficient. It doesn't give you a right standing before God. Now, then he comes to verse 17, as we're going to see. Um, and he's going to focus on what we might term the Jewish moralist. You see, I've divided it into three different people. Uh, someone would say the man in the gutter, the man on the clean side of the road, and the, the man with the Bible under his arm going to church. I've divided the world into those three categories in some way the pagan, the moralist, and the Jew. However, there is a sense in which the moralist um, could well be the moralist he has in view is a Jew. Uh, and so even though he uses the term moralist or he uses a more general thought at the beginning of chapter two, he comes down to verse 17, as you'll see very shortly, and he says, but, but if you call yourself a Jew. And so he's still addressing the same person, the person who is inexcusable in chapter two, verse one, I take it. Um, and so there's a sense in which, even though for the sake of convenience, we divide it into three categories, in focus, what he's going to say is whether Gentile or Jew, whether moralist or not, uh, whether whatever your background, the truth of the Bible is this, that you're condemned by creation, you're condemned by your conscience, and we're going to see today that we're condemned by the moral standards that God has revealed by the commandments of God. And so that's maybe helpful just to say by way of introduction. When we come to the Jew and uh, the moralistic Jew, um, he has a number of added assets he feels. After all, why should he not be right with God? God has graced him and blessed him by giving him his sacred law, by bringing him into a sacred covenant, by telling him something about himself that other people don't know. And so he's going to build, the Jew's going to build his defense around these things. The fact that he has the law, verse 17 to 24. We may call that a legal defense. We we have possession of the law. We have been given it by God. Um, so therefore, God must see us as different and distinct and above everyone else. Uh, ceremonial defense, we might say. Um, we are circumcised. We've been brought into the covenant. Uh, circumcised the eighth day, Paul the Apostle says, and so on. That's verse 25 to 29. And a philosophical defense when when he gets rid, when Paul gets rid of the legal defense very adequately and the ceremonial defense, he then has to deal with a philosophical defense. 
we we know about God and therefore we're going to argue with you, Paul, about God's character and his nature and how God can't really judge us. So Paul anticipates the Jews having these questions, um, these philosophical, as it were, questions that they'll try to hide behind these fig leaves as they come to the end of their argument. And he deals with them before he comes to Romans chapter 3, verse 9 to 20. Now, in this section, 3, 9 to 20, he's going to sum up the guilt of the world as a whole by reading out an indictment. I've said in the handout, uh, which is available from myself and Williamson01 at yahoo.co.uk, I've said in the handout um, 10 direct quotes from Scripture. I think there actually might be more than that. But there are direct quotes from Scripture proving the guilt of the whole world. So this is a written indictment, as it were both Jew and Gentile, both together unprofitable. None that does good, no, not one. They're all under the penalty of sin. And that's, we're going to come to the end of, of 3 verse 20, and we won't get a chance to look over into the next verse much. But now a righteousness of God without the law is manifested. And so that's where we're going to go next. At the next study, we're going to take a look into the solution to our problems. Yes, we've got these great witnesses that stand against us. Creation that says we are guilty. Conscience that says we are guilty. The commandments that say we are guilty. But on the other hand, thank God we have Christ. We have someone who came in order to bring a righteousness of God to us through his propitiatory sacrifice. But all that in another time okay so let's come back to romans chapter 8 um and we'll look at um verse why well, i'm saying romans chapter 8 i mean romans chapter 2 and we'll re read from verse number 17 so just before we can we we start we'll just commit ourselves to the lord in prayer father we pray that you would help us as we would Look at your word and look at this um, intriguing and involved section of your word that we might draw from it the truths we need um, that will help establish us in our, our faith and our understanding of the Lord. And we pray, our Father, we might grow to know you and to love you more as a result of understanding your gospel. We commit ourselves to you in the Lord's name. Amen. So Romans chapter 2, verse 17 to 24. I've got a little cup of tea here and it's just about helping my throat out. Right, we'll read down uh, this section and we'll think about it uh, together um, and then we'll move on to the next one. So Romans 8, uh, sorry, Romans 2 verse 17 to 24. But if, but if, you notice that, but if you call yourself a Jew, and I'm reading from the ESV, and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law an embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of 
you. So here's the charge against the Jewish world. First little bit, possessing the law isn't enough for righteousness. Notice verse 17 and 18. We see how much the law comes into it. If you have a highlighter, go to your, your, your New Testament in these sections and underline the references to the law. Now, if you want to be really pedantic, maybe check whether it's the law or law that's being emphasized in Romans. But that being said, if you see the word law, it's best to underline. You call yourself a Jew and rely on the, yeah, on that, on the law. Because you're instructed from the law. Verse 20, having in the law an, an embodiment of knowledge and truth. You who boast in the, verse 23, law. Dishonor God by breaking the law. You see, this is all about the Jews' relationship to the law of Moses. They felt that somehow, because they had the law, that this proved that they were distinct from the rest of the peoples of the earth. Um, they were in many ways, that is true, but they thought it meant that they would not be judged necessarily the same way as a Gentile is judged. They thought God was partial in this way. Now, we're going to find out in a chapter or two that God's not only the God of the Jews, but he is the God of the Gentiles also. In fact, the end of chapter three tells us that. Uh, and, and so... Yes, they have special privileges as, as a Jew by having the law, but it didn't mean that they were exempt from God's judgment. In fact, the law itself brought a condemnation with it. To know the law and to be brought under the strictures of that law was no light thing. There were privileges to it, but there was also a great responsibility with it. And they were not thinking of that. They were taking this as a kind of comfort blanket as a, as a kind of um, idol in and of itself that they were trusting in. They were trusting in the fact that they possessed the law of Moses. They had something from God. They no doubt it came from God. Sinai and everything like that was, was drummed into them from being a small child. And they believed implicitly in the God of Sinai, the God who had rescued them uh, and the God who was um, had given them the law. So they believed in the existence of that God. They believed in the reality of the law given to them. Notice in this little section, the first couple of verses here, they call themselves a Jew. That marks them as distinct. We're distinct from other people. The, the word Jew means praise. Um, and we'll see that is important as we get down to the end of the section. They rely on the law and they boast in God and they know his will and they approve what is excellent because they are instructed from the law. These are five things that, in a Godward way, the Jews are relying on. They're relying on the fact that they are a Jew, on the fact that they possess the law, that they have the God of Israel to their boast, their God as their kind of mascot, the true God. Uh, they know his will. In other words, God has revealed something of himself to them. They know his desire for, for human flourishing. Um, they, they understand these things. And, and they know that they can assess and approve what is excellent, distinguish the things that differ, because they're instructed from the law. So they have these advantages that they see over other people. So they come into the courtroom and they have these advantages that they feel they can lay on the table and say, surely I'm not guilty, surely 
I'm not unrighteous. But not only are they resting on their religion, they, they are knowledgeable with regard to the truth. They know the truth. The Jew convinced himself that he is the moral teacher of the other nations. Uh, if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, notice this, that there's a, a self-awareness they have. They, they feel that they stand tall with regard to the rest of humankind. They, they're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now, there's an interesting development here. It starts off with those who are blind and those then who have a small light, a light to those who are in darkness. Those who are stumbling towards that light, an instructor of the foolish. Um, a teacher of children, that's actually the thought of a teacher of babes, a teacher of 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 infant converts, um, of proselytes, having in the law an embodiment of knowledge and truth. In other words, they see themselves as drawing people towards the light again and again, just because they have this law and in it the embodiment, the, the, the outline of knowledge and truth. So they're not only resting in religion, God word, they they feel they know the truth, manward. They have they they stand head and shoulders above the others around them. What is the underlying problem? Well, look at verse number twenty-one. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? So there's again this charge of hypocrisy coming in here, and it's very specific now. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Well, we know. In Malachi, that God say that a man ought not to rob God from God, but they were robbing from God. They were giving to him the, 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 the least instead of the best. So they stole in that way. And it would seem, uh, as we go on, um, that they had no problem with, with, actually, a lot of them had no problem with stealing from pagan temples. After all, it was given to heathen temples and, and, and idols. So... You'll remember in Acts 19, Paul is put up on a charge and someone's defending him and says, that, well, these men have not robbed temples. In other words, there was something that was going about in the ancient world where the Jewish people were known for having such a disregard for the other idols of the, the other races that, that they would go into their temples, which were dripping with gold and, and, and jewels, and take from them. You say one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? So he's moved from... Preaching against stealing and them stealing, that's is that the ninth commandment? He's moving up the commandments now. The one that says, don't commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You remember that occasion when the Lord Jesus saw them drag a lady into his presence in John chapter 8? Uh, and, and they would say, this woman ought, ought to be stoned. And, and the Lord says, whoever is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at at her. And the interesting thing is that the Lord actually said, whoever has this sin among, among you, one who does not have this sin among you. And it may well be pointing back to the sin he's spoken about, the sin of adultery, the sin that's been on their minds. This woman has committed adultery. And yet we know the Lord himself tells us in another part that they, they looked after, look at a woman with us. 
they were committing adultery in their heart. So, so these are things that they have failed on. They have sinned in as well. They, you who abhor idols, be you don't mind taking money from idols' temples. You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. In other words, he's summarizing the fact that the, the law that they boast in, that they rely on, the, the law that they, they claim as their ticket to heaven, as it were, is the very thing that condemns them. And shows them to be unrighteous. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the nations because of you. And so the, the, the high water mark of this Jewish people should have been that they could tell the nations about Yahweh, about the God of Israel. That they could announce to the people the truth about God. And yet instead of that, what has happened is this. The name of God has been spoken off in an evil way among the Gentiles because of you. So their guilt was even greater than the pagans. Because they take the name of God to themselves and say they stand for God, whereas they live in a way that is totally opposed to God. And so the Jew has an even greater responsibility and is coming under, no doubt, even greater guilt as a result of it. So this charge against the Jewish word, they said, well, we have the law. Surely that will help us in some way. But they didn't understand it was that very law that condemned them. You see, the law, it cannot justify. We'll see that uh, towards the end of the session today. But neither can it sanctify. It can't make us more holy. That is chapter 68. Uh, we'll not deal with that just at the moment. What the law can do is it can condemn. It can judge sin as it sees it in the flesh. The law is like a mirror. It shows up sin for what it is. If we understand what sin is, we seek uh, a savior. The second section is from verse 25 to 29. Let's read it together. Having dealt with the thought of the law, of course, the Jewish mind turns to, well, what about circumcision we're circumcised we're brought into the, the the among the people of god for circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law but if you break the law your circumcision becomes uncircumcision so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision then he is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have a written code of uncircumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, but of the spirit. Not, not of the, by, by the spirit, sorry, not of the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So it would seem that the Jew reverts to hiding behind his religious writes the fact that he has been he has been um circumcised on the eighth day uh, he's been brought into the the outs the uh, professing people of god of course there's a parallel here with how some people view baptism some people feel that with their whether it be with infant baptism or something like that that if uh you you do that you you're kind of brought into a sort of you're, you're brought into the family, the, the, the kingdom of God. Um, you, you're, you're associated with the kingdom of God. And some would go as far as to think that you're, you're safe. You're, you're actually in some way saved by your infant baptism, baptismal regeneration, as spoken of as. 
But of course, baptism, like circumcision, uh, they're just signs. They're signs of something. They're not signs of the same thing. We have to make that clear uh, before our Presbyterian friends uh, get too excited. They, they don't equate directly. Um, there are similarities, but they don't equate directly. For circumcision and to enter into the, the, the people of God, as it were, in the Old Testament, you were brought in uh, a day number eight into the congregation, as it were, by, by means of circumcision if you were a male. Uh, and yet, in saying that, that was not sufficient for you to be right with God eternally. Not at all. It never was uh, seen as such. An outward mark is just that, an outward mark. It symbolizes something deeper that you're associated with something very precious, uh, the covenant people of God, as it has it in the Old Testament. And so it is with baptism. When you trust the Lord Jesus and you obey the Lord in baptism, and you go below the waters of baptism, uh, you're identifying yourself with the Lord Jesus, with his people. Uh, you're saying, I've, I've passed over, I've crossed over from, from when I was in my sin to now I am in Christ. And you, you're, you're announcing that to people. And you're doing it in this beautiful symbolic way, which speaks not only of the death, resurrection of the Lord Jesus, but of your death and your resurrection is associated with him that you're walking now in newness of life. Those are beautiful truths. But, but the Jews had a problem because they thought that somehow through their this outward ceremony, they were more likely to have favor with God. And, and there are people like that with baptism today. They feel that somehow they're more likely to have favor with God and be okay with God if they're baptized. However, that's not the case, not at all. Um, as, as Paul says here, for circumcision is a value. They're saying to themselves, well, well, is there no value in my circumcision? It's it's a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision just becomes as uncircumcision. It's just an outward sign. It's just an outward mark. So the one who's uncircumcision, uh, uncircumcised, he keeps the law. Will his uncircumcision not be seen as circumcision? In other words, God is dealing with heart issues. He looks and man looks in the outward appearance and there might be a symbolic value to that. But God isn't looking at your heart. He speaks about um, those who are uncircumcised in hearts and ears. Acts chapter seven, of course. He who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew as one merely outwardly. Nor circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. So he's come back to this name of a Jew, which is associated with being in the people of God. It's associated with being part of the circumcised community, as it were. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So this Jew, uh, he's trying to hide behind these religious rites. However, those rights don't mean anything if they're divorced from any kind of reality in his life. A true Jew would be one who has praise from God. A true Jew is one who is upright and who, who follows the law, who has acknowledged his own sin and, and, and turned to the Lord and, and been regenerated like Nicodemus learned in John chapter 3. Some of the Jewish defense 
is now going to be made in another line. Not only are they saying, of course, that they have um, the law, however they've broken the law, and not only do they say they've got circumcision, however the circumcision isn't of value, but at this point, no doubt, in desperation, they turn to a more philosophical reasoning. They start to speak to Paul in, in, in some kind of way. He, he's imagining them speaking to him like this, and they raise a number of questions, questions about God, about his character, about his nature. These are probably some of the common objections that Paul faced when he was proving the guilt of the Jew to Jewish audiences. So the legal case is watertight. They're breaking their own law from God. The ceremonial case is empty of, of any kind of value um, against, um, against their defense and their defense. However, it didn't stop them philosophizing about whether God should really judge them. So Paul is uncovering the rebellion of their own heart in this dialogue. Let's read it together, and then I'll read uh, through a paraphrase that I've tried to uh, put together maybe to help us. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written. You may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not to evil that good may come? Some people charge us with, saying their condemnation is just. Now, this is perhaps one of the more te technical and difficult sections in, in Romans. And I just want to go down it in a kind of paraphrase uh, and try to understand what he's saying here. Okay, we have an opponent who is speaking to, to Paul. And Paul is responding to the accusations that are brought to him. There are three or four questions here. Let's move down them slowly. The opponent says, first of all, you're saying there's no real advantage with being a Jew. Paul responds, no, I'm not saying that. There are many advantages. The chief one is that they were given the responsibility to look after the words of God. They were entrusted with the oracles of God, it says. So in other words, they're saying, oh, you're saying Jew, Jew, being a Jew has no advantage at all. And he's saying, no, no, you were entrusted with the, 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 the very words of God. But in, in that idea of being entrusted and given the responsibility, there is below it and underneath it the implication that you have that responsibility and must respond to that responsibility entrusted with something it's not just that something's given to you you can do whatever you want with it you're entrusted with it entrusted with it so the opponent comes back okay we all agree in this but what if some jews were unfaithful to the promises in god's word are you saying god will somehow be unfaithful to his word as a response after all god made a promise to the jews to bless them now the implication here is that if you're true if you're true about our guilt and judgment before God, 
then God is going to be unfaithful to his words because after all, he said he would bless the Jews. Paul says, by no means will God be false to his word. God will bless the Jews. Let God be true, though every man a liar. Just as King David says, he says, he, he understood his own guilt, his own sin. This great man faced up to his own unfaithfulness to God, that you might be declared righteous in your words and gain victory when you're judged. In other words, anybody that calls God into question as to his own righteous character, God will be justified in what he's done. He'll be declared to be right in what he is doing. Now, the implication here is that even King David recognized his sin. This doesn't just apply to some Jews that are unfaithful. It's all the Jews that are unfaithful. And God will show ultimately himself to be true to his promises to Israel. So that's question number one. Is there no real advantage to do question number two? Uh, but then is God unfaithful to his word? No, he's not. Question number three. Okay, even if we were unrighteous and are unrighteous, as a result of our unrighteousness, uh, we show ourselves and show God to be really righteous by the shadow, by casting him into bold relief. So imagine a, a really dark background that you put to a beautiful painting to show it up for all its beauty. Um, if after all, we're so exceedingly sinful that we show God's exceeding purity to be what it really is. Is God God not really being unrighteous in judging us? Does you, you can see where they're going with their argument? They're they're holding on to these threads desperately. Uh, the implication is that unrighteousness is really a good thing because it shows God in a good light, and God therefore would be unrighteous to punish us. Paul says, by no means. How could God judge anybody in if in that way, if He's the judge of the world? All unrighteousness would be seen, would be showing up God's righteousness to be what it is. But God has the right to judge the world because he is righteous. And the end does not justify the means. You see, if you take this line of reasoning, the whole principle of justice is undermined. Finally, in question, he say, the opponent says, if my lie shows up God's truth and makes it abound, why am I condemned as a sinner? And why, why shouldn't I do evil that good may come? Now, what Paul has done is he's shown to them that this is the very thing that they accuse him of. They accuse him with this gospel of grace and turning away from the law uh, and, and saying there's something better in Christ of, of doing evil that good may come. And he says, now listen, you're now you're saying that. You're accusing me of that when I'm spreading the gospel of grace. People that think like this about God's character and defame his nature, their condemnation, he says, is just. I'm not even going to answer their question. They are evidently self-condemned. They're heading for judgment. Their condemnation is just. Now, what can we learn from this dialogue? Well, not only do we learn that mankind is guilty, and particularly the Jewish people are guilty by of their law, and their circumcision won't stop that. And they have no real philosophical answers to, to give to these issues of their guilt. We also discover how much man tries to get out and worm their way out of their responsibilities. They don't want to face the light of God's presence. 
And so they'll try, they'll even cast aspersions on the character of the God that they claim to know in order that they might be seen to be not guilty. But the Jewish world is guilty before God. Now under the last section for, for today, um, the indictment against the whole world, verse 9 to 20. What then are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. None, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. The whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in the sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So an indictment is a written document of the charges put uh, to the, def the defendant. The charges are laid out clearly and succinctly. And these Old Testament oracles contain the indictment against the whole world. The Jews are indicted alongside the Gentiles, verse 9. Are the Jews any better off? No, not, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the condemnation of sin. The charges are then read out. For there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together have become worshippers. No one does good, not even one. We see in that first little section, verse 10 to 9, the breadth of human unrighteousness. Everyone's included. Together they've become unprofitable. No one understands. No one does good. At that ultimate level, as God looks upon it, they might do more good than their neighbor at a human level. But when it comes to God and the standard that he has in his word, all are unrighteous and all are condemned. But not only the breadth of human unrighteousness, we have the depth of human unrighteousness. Each personality, each human personality has been deeply affected by, by sin. Their th throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. The, in, in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so we see the depth of human unrighteousness. Finally, the guilt of the whole world is established. Now we know that whatever things the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So the Jews can't be excluded here. They're under the law so that every mouth, both Jew and Gentile, may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And then he sums it up the principle that he has taught. For by works of law keeping, works of the law, no human being will be justified, declared righteous in his sight. Since through the law, comes the full knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law is to show up people's sin. That is the main purpose of the law. Moses, the main purpose of the Decalogue is to show people how much they need the Lord, how much they need a Savior. Now we can learn some lessons from this. 
there's ways in which when we're discussing it, we thought of how Christianity can make us, um, can be like the Jewish religion in many ways. We have something that is great, but if we if we turn it into some kind of moral code where we are superior to everyone around us, um, that's a very sad thing. Uh, if our understanding, even of shedding the light of the gospels like the Jews who thought they were in the moral high ground and they could just be a witness to all those around them and everyone would flock to the Lord. Uh, we've got to be careful with that. We do have to share the gospel, but we should do it as one beggar telling another beggar how to find bread. Uh, we can use the law to point to Christ. The law points out the sin in the individual and, and helps them to understand that they're not right with God, that they need Christ. Uh, what about people who've never heard the gospel? Are they guilty? Well, it tells us in chapter one that they are. They're guilty of res not responding to the revelation that is given to them. And there's no doubt that there are times and occasions when those who in these cultures even have have turned to the light of, of, of God by power of the spirit of God, that God uh, opens up ways whereby the gospel can come to them. Um, so as we go from this, uh, I trust you'll understand how, how deep the human problem is and how much, therefore, we need the righteousness that's from God that he is offering in the gospel. Thank you. Uh, I trust that this uh, will be a blessing to you.